This is Unstructured. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured. Unstructured is a chat with people who are changing the world around them through teaching, creating, or just living as an example. And when meeting folks who can learn from each other, be inspired, and maybe even make a new friend together. All right, everybody, welcome back to Unstructured. Today's guest is Adam Hansen. He is the author of the book or co-author of the book, Outsmart Your Instincts, and is our innovation expert. I know Adam fairly well through the um, mixed middle arts community. It seems to be a recurring theme. And we've interacted a bunch of times, usually playfully. Yes. How are you doing today, Adam? Oh, Eric, if it got any better, I would be poorly equipped to handle it, man. Okay. It's just great. <laughs> well, I want to start off with um, what exactly is an innovation expert? Yeah, isn't it so funny? Um, so a lot of people have heard this idea that for every product, new product that comes out, somewhere upstream, there were a few hundred ideas, right, in order finally to go through all the process and end up with that one that actually gets commercialized. Well, we are the people whom you engage to help uh, pull together those hundreds and hundreds of ideas. So we work at the very, what's called in innovation circles, the fuzzy front end of innovation, where you're just trying to figure out, um, hey, where should we even play within that big, broad arena? Uh, how can we come up with lots and lots of ideas and start you know, start considering things we never would have normally? How do we really start pushing for uniqueness and relevance and really making a difference for our, our customers. Um, you know, a lot in a lot of large companies, uh, products introduced from within the previous three years can account for up to fifty percent of profits. They're not that you know they're not they may only be like fifteen percent or even ten percent of total sales volume, but because they're newer, they tend to be more profitable. And so it's important for large companies in particular. But I would say any company really should be thinking about this. You need to be innovating constantly because, you know, the, the algorithm that you have in place to keep the lights on, to keep the machines running and everything in your business is valid only as long as the world doesn't change. And what we're seeing is more and more, the world's changing pretty constantly. And so you always have to be rethinking, you know, what is, you know, with shifting customer needs, how do we make sure that we're on top of that, that we're not lagging, that we're not losing the innovation, you know, prerogative prerogative to any um, competitors. And so we can help people with that. Okay. So um, that means you are actually working with the um, product invention itself, or are you working more with the process of how to develop a team and build their mindset to where they invent on their own? Do you work yourself out of a job or are you there the whole time handling? We would love to. Uh, we And we have no problem with that. We are we we see our deliverables. Uh, I, I try not to cop out here. The answer is kind of both. But we see our deliverables. And historically, we've been known for the really great, you know, clients are really pumped at the end of one of our projects. And we our projects tend to be anywhere between two and five days. We get an awful lot done, you know, in a, in a very short time. Um, and so historically, we've gotten credit for all these great ideas that they're walking away with. And we usually take them through the first round of concept development and actually 
often do the first round of qualitative testing to see if we take eight to 10 concepts into test, you know, which four to five are really rising to the top and why. But what we're trying to do more and more is we want to be known more and more for not just that, but, but for also building adaptive capacity in our client teams so that they can continue to keep you know, the good work going once they get back to the ranch. It's all too easy to do all this great work while they're with us because they're away from, you know, from their environment. Our environment is very conducive to creativity. We have, you know, high ceilings and round rooms and, you know, bright colors and all these great things. Um, but we want to make sure that we're not setting them up then for disappointment once they get back to, you know, their corporate environment. And all of a sudden, all the yes buts start coming out, all the, um, you know, it's kind of understandable, but but really repeated behaviors that can almost instantly start taking really great ideas and start pushing them in some weird regression to the mean. That's an interesting question. You mentioned environment. Um, do you ever go to their environment and 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 look around and and maybe suggest some changes that they can make or or advise them? Like, oh, you know, maybe you're a little stymied because uh, you have people on three different floors and they don't really get together or, or, or different things like that. I didn't know if that was something you. Not, not that so much. We, uh, in as much as what they go back to their um, companies with, we talk an awful lot about, you know, kind of the, you know, the mental environment between their ears mm-hmm. uh, and how important that is. And to be really conscious of what's going on there, because we, what we've noticed and, and one of the things we write about in the book is that too many of those things upon which they stumble in doing innovation right are just unnecessary. And, and they're these kind of these, um, you know, they're, they're these vestigial uh, mental shortcuts that, that really served our ancestors well, but don't really serve us as well, particularly when we're trying to do innovation right. Mm-hmm. And so really trying to help them be very aware of that, to, not to, not to succumb to the automaticity of, of th- that we all do if we're not being careful, but to really be much more thoughtful and, and to recognize that, hey, it really, once you, had, once you kind of had this viewpoint, it really doesn't take too much to start to see some real improvement in how we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Sure, that makes sense. Um, now, I'm not an expert on it, and it's I'm only tangentially um, related to it, but how would you relate yourself to say Six Sigma Lean? Well, so here's the, the I think the best way of thinking about all this is um, Roger L. Martin, great, just great thinker. He was the dean of the Rotman School at Toronto um, several years ago. He's not dean anymore. He's got the uh, the Martin Center for Global Prosperity going on there or something. Uh, he he talks about how. You know, a lot of people have exposure to like a new product funnel. So you start the very fat end of the funnel with the hundreds of ideas that you get by working with ideas ago or, or someone else or doing similar work. But then through a variety of, of stages and gates, you start to winnow that down till eventually you have the one thing that you're going to launch. And he says, understand the knowledge, the knowledge journey there. It's not just a, a, a new product funnel. It's actually a knowledge funnel. And at the very fat end, you're much more concerned about validity. Are we doing the right things? And we are reliability. Are we doing things right? Uh, as you go then 
So then kind of broadening this just a little, the fat end of the funnel, apart from just, you know, coming up with lots of new product ideas, could be thought of as the mystery. And then slowly you start working through mystery. I add one stage to his model. I just say between mystery and his next stage, I think, is this thing called hunch, where you have you have kind of these um, these patterns start coming together. You're not even sure why, but, you know, these there's these kind of subattentional patterns that you've picked up on before. You don't know why they're coming together. Kind of a synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you uh, slowly start coming toward heuristic or some basic rules of thumb that can explain about 70 to maybe 80% of what's going on. But then eventually you go from heuristics then all the way to the algorithm. And that's where Six Sigma comes in. That's where lean. That's where. So then when we start, <clears throat> as you go through the journey, the the proportion of preoccupation with with um, validity to reliability decreases. And we start becoming much more concerned about reliability. We figured out we're pretty sure we're doing the right things now at, after a certain point. And now we need to make sure we're doing things right. And that's that's what reliability is all about. That's what most companies, uh, that's where most companies uh, focus most of their attention. And not often enough, I believe, do they go back to, up to say, hey, wait, our profits down because we need to rethink validity and go back up again into the mystery and, and do the cycle all over again. Right. Okay. So so it's easy to just keep going. We become very reliant on the algorithm because, hey, it's it, you know, consistent results. That's what reliability is all about. You know, mm -hmm. uh, six, six sigma. We're only going to have one error in a million. Right. Mm -hmm. Um And again, that's perfect as long as conditions don't change. Uh, enough to call into question whether that's what you should be doing at all, not just doing well. So you would be, would it be fair to say that you're more part of the inception and Six Sigma is more part of the refinement? Yeah. Well, we need to be certainly aware of what conditions our clients face once they're done with us. I mean, we want to, we always want to set them up for, for success. We never want to go, um, we want to help them resist the urge to focus too much on feasibility and practicality and everything. We say, hey, just learn first what would be a win. And what and and in this in this kind of this caution and this very understandable concern about practicality and everything, you know, can we actually manufacture it and can we manufacture it at scale and with all the efficiencies we need and everything? Um, those clearly are concerns that need to be addressed, but not too early. Because when you do that too early, you're already trading off potentially a lot of value and you're, you're leaving value on the table because you never start to consider things. It's just too easy to kind of dismiss stuff because, oh man, I have no idea how we'd make that. Well, great. Neither does your competition. And, and if you can, if you can be the folks who see an opportunity like that, it might be tough to develop but problems are jobs. And you're, I, I think one way of thinking about innovation is just what are the set of problems we're going to take on that we hope our competition just finds too onerous to bother with, you know, and then we'll do it. And then we'll be able to deliver value in an entirely different way. And hopefully that leads to preference and to, you know, better profits. For creation, do you believe in, um, hopefully I don't tear it up. There's a great article called This is How Apple Rolls by uh, John Gruber of Daring Fireball. And he talks about how Apple would develop a product, which is kind of simple. 
It only does a couple things, and it does it really, really well. And then every year they just keep iterating on it, iterating on it, iterating <laughs> on it. And there's a little bit more, a little bit more. And year to year, it's not necessarily a whole lot. But when you look at the product from year one to year five, there's a giant leap. Is that oh, yeah. something you'd recommend or is a good methodology to kind of incorporate all this? Or Well, there, there, are, different, uh, there are different basic strategies. And so when you look at kind of like the innovation playbook, you, you've kind of got – so what Apple is really brilliant at is they are, you know, as good or if not better than anyone else, they're brilliant systems integrators, right? They almost never invent any of the core technologies that are in their products, but True. they're the ones who know what, what's, what all is going on. And then they're really good at stitching it together to create something very different. I have to admit, look, I'm an innovation guy. I think I'm more open to innovation than many. When the iPad first came out, I was even aware of my own thinking, and I'm going, okay, just because you don't get it, Adam, just because you don't see any any reason why you think you'd need one doesn't mean that there might not be something there. And so, you know. I hate to age you. I think there's a reason for that. Um, you and I aren't that far off in age. I'm really old. I'm uh, older than you. <laughs> I'm 47. You're not that old. I'm 55. Okay. But we're still within that range. And when the yeah. iPad came out, the people who gravitated to it were the seniors and children, both ends of it. You and I oh, have had right. a mouse and a screen forever. And yeah, I, mean, I, got, I got my first lap, laptop with a touchpad on it back like in 90, probably 95 or 96. So, I mean, I, yeah, that's how I'd been rolling for, you know, a couple of decades. Right. So making that shift over to the touch screen is a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also for me, it was just like, why do I need this thing that's halfway between my laptop and my phone? Right. You know, like, is that a really, it seems like it, my first thought was again, and I'm aware of all this kind of thinking mm -hmm. and I still succumb to it because I'm human. Uh, but, you know, to me, it, at first it seemed like neither fish nor fowl, right. you know, I love my phone there. Here's the list of, of, of activities and tasks I can accomplish with it. Mm -hmm. Here's my laptop. Here's all what I can accomplish with it. I don't see this place in the middle that is meaningful enough that I, that I actually need that. Of course I was proven wrong because I, I said, okay, I'm just going to go do it. Cause I need to, <laughs> I need to wrap my head around this. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course I became very, uh, I fell in love with my iPad and then it be became obviously kind of indispensable to me. But again, it's, it's that, uh, so it's back to Apple being really great systems integrators. And there had been a Ted talk just it was either a TED Talk or something that came out of the MIT Media Lab. I can't, I can't remember where, where Touch uh, first was demonstrated. But I had only seen it like maybe 18 months before the iPad came out for the very first time. Earlier in my career, I actually had... Um, you mean the iPhone? Because Touch was on the iPhone three years oh, yeah, before yeah, the iPhone, iPad. Yeah, yeah thank okay. you. Yeah. Um, earlier in my career, when I was, uh, I was innovation at, uh, director at Mars, the candy company... Uh, I got to be one of our one of the company's two delegates to the um, MIT consortium, which meant I got to go up to MIT about once every six to eight weeks and just be the dumbest person in the room. And oh, nice. Yeah. And so a lot of hanging out with the media lab and everything. I remember uh, coming home so excited, telling my wife and kids about this new 
technology that would allow it's like your newspaper you're just going to have this film and the newspaper is going to change every day and the film stays the same of course you know that it didn't quite go that way but that you know became the kindle mm-hmm. and and again we now look at all and th- this was back like in 90 now that's like 98 or 99 or something like that but but anyhow it's it's uh, it's fascinating you used to see these breakthrough technologies and then there was more of a lag before anything was commercialized mm-hmm. with and that's just been so compressed so Apple is really smart always to know what's going on with all these different um, capabilities, but then bundling them in a way that, you know, a lot of other people don't. So I, w- I would say I-, I think that's their kind of their superpower. I agree. And would you consider um, uh, you mentioned the iPad, how you were resistant to it at first. That would be a status quo bias, correct? <laughs> that was that was. And again, as a uh, as a guy who spent his whole career in innovation, I am aware when I'm um, succumbing to, you know, uh, th- th- those those same kinds of cognitive biases and everything. And it really bothers me when I see it in myself because I think I, I really I should be walking the talk or if I'm not, I need to understand why I'm not beyond just kind of the most obvious explanation for it. Could it be argued, though, that it's a good thing too? that you are forced to prove the case for it. You know, there are a lot of things that come out that I say are ridiculous, and that could be status quo bias, or it could be completely useless, and the market agrees. Well, it could, and well, also it could be, uh, you know, markets aren't monolithic, True. and particularly in the United States. You know, we have 325, what are we up to now? 320, 325 million people. I mean, um Anything brilliant, by definition, is going to be be polarizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be a fairly significant percentage of the population that doesn't get it, because if you're appealing to everyone too much, you're you're usually again it's this regression to the mean, and you don't have anything that really sticks out. You don't have anything that really overserves a particular niche, right? And right. and you want to be sure to figure out which niche you can overserve uh, which niche niche you can just totally delight you know etc and that's that's really where you want to be in doing so you're going to lose a certain amount of people you were never really going to get them so much anyhow and so good work is all, always polarizing so yeah i mean it could it could have been just something as simple as that maybe i just really wasn't the target so uh in other words don't design to meh oh exactly yeah exactly well that's i mean meh and, you know, and, and this, um, you know, this trading off for practicality, I think, is the innovation equivalent of gravity. That's mm-hmm. where things go unless you're applying sufficient force otherwise. And um, meh is the path of commoditization and, and, real, and no profit. And so you can't uh, – it's, it's like fighting entropy. You just got to constantly be looking for – um, ways not to slip into commoditization because that's where things are going to go. Ultimately, everything does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why people like me have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've mentioned Kodak in a few of your interviews and they essentially succumbed because they were a razor and blades company after a fashion, weren't they? Yeah. And it's, and it's so sad. They actually invented digital film. Mm-hmm. 
digital cameras, rather, not digital film. That doesn't exist. Uh, but they did, they invented digital cameras, and I interned there the summer of 88, um, right in between my two years of uh, MBA school. And they already had a very thriving digital group at that point because they knew it was coming. And most people forget that Kodak actually – really led in consumer digital for about the its first six years. Sure. Most most digital cameras <clears throat> that any of us bought, uh, the likelihood early, if we were early enough adopters, they were likely Kodak cameras. Or licensed and, technology within. Yeah. Well, even, I mean, just even the, the apparatus itself, they, they, they did really well. What happened is they just couldn't wing them, wing themselves off sufficiently from other parts of the business. So great. Now that you can take your digital photos, but now you need to bring in your medium to target or Walmart or whatever. So you can still process it on Kodak paper. Right. And they, they didn't want to lose the paper business. It's like, Oh my God. Yeah. We're already, well, we're already losing the silver halide film business. We can't Mm -hmm. lose the paper business as well. What are we going to do? And so the error that they committed, and I would hold, when you, when you look at the big flameouts of large corporation, um, it's not because of risks of commission that they die. It's because of risks of omission. Kodak didn't fail because they tried to do too many different things and run different experiments with digital photography. They failed because they didn't try nearly enough and, and try to try to get the, the new, to get the new algorithm figured out. They were still, they just couldn't, they couldn't separate themselves, you know, from all these legacy issues and everything. And and even when you, you know, I mean. They feared cannibalizing they, themselves and they let the rest of the world do it. Well, that's right. And, and, you know, how far into any accounting 101 course do you first learn about sunk cost mm-hmm. and, uh, and how you're not supposed to let that sway your decision too much, right? Sunk costs are sunk costs, you know. There are legacy issues, et cetera, but guess what? We don't have any legacy to worry about at all if we totally go away. So it's uh, it's like the idea that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to put my seatbelt on because it will wrinkle my clothes. And, you right. know, the, the response to that is, you know what wrinkles your clothes even more? <laughs> you you going through the windshield, <laughs> you know. Very true. And so it's... um. It was just sad to see that happen. I I, I kept uh, in touch with some friends at Kodak um, through the years, and just to see that happen, just ah. Oh, and Rochester is such a cool little town, and uh, we, you know, in, in, in few other things went differently. We might have ended up there, but I was kind of freaked out about um, working for that large of a company right out of grad school. <laughs> mm, that makes sense. You mentioned Gateway as well. I used to work for Gateway. Oh, did you really? Yep, right at the height and at the front end of the decline. Yeah, and so I mean, would you say that? I mean, did Gateway? Go, uh, I mean, they were huge once. You know, yes. did they did they go away because they tried to do too many new things, or because they didn't try nearly enough? I blame it on metrics. Well, okay, so because like Gateway had the reputation as the best customer service in the world. And that was sure. huge. That's where I worked. Yeah. Well, right after I came in, they came in with the metrics. You need to cut your call times. Oh. So I because, think that Gateway yeah. lost their soul and with it, the business. 
Yeah. I mean, everybody but, talks about Zappos and the storied arrangements, but Gateway had a warm, fuzzy feeling. Totally. People liked it. It was a cow box. It was comfortable. Exactly. exactly. And how do you keep that? That Gateway is a good company you told your parents to buy because, well, you know what? They'll take good care of you. And then they yep. had the Gateway stores before Apple had the Apple stores. Absolutely. So they yeah. already had a footprint where you could take the computer into the store. But when they go into cutting costs and cutting times, then the whole thing they are offering, <sighs> which, by the way, Apple's fantastic at, Apple's service, have you heard about anyone better? No. Yeah. So I, I think that, in my personal opinion, that is what destroyed Gateway. Yeah, and it's just uh, it's just tragic, and 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 so it's what's what's tricky about all that, the practical concerns, bringing in the metrics. It sounds so responsible. It sounds so. It's it's kind of hard to argue with it, um, but there wasn't enough focus on, you know, again, uniqueness and relevance together account for over 80% of all innovation success. Sure. And, and so the moment you start doing anything that starts to put a dent in that uniqueness, you understand why it's probably, you know, as they, as they grew, they got more professional management and you get these mm-hmm. very smart people coming in saying, Hey, our next opportunity, better metrics, right? Mm-hmm. And, well, and so it's public. understandable to see how it happens, but that shouldn't happen at the expense of what brought you to the party. I agree. And sometimes I wonder if companies shouldn't be public at times because a private company could say flat out, we're good with 5 to 7% this year. We want to build out our customer service, et cetera, and we'll, you know, we'll catch up later. Not everyone can be Amazon and be given a... <laughs> 12 year ramp of continuous losses and have everybody be patient with them. That's right. Most public companies, they need to turn up something. So how does gateway do it? Oh, uh, well we're cutting costs here. So that's going to give us more to the bottom line. Kodak, same thing. They had to report to their shareholders. So I do understand a little bit of that. And they're saying you cannot get rid of that cash cow. And I see that as a problem with Google right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's it, it's just kind of axiomatic. I mean, that's where people are going to go, and so trying to figure out how you do both. So how do you how do you or or, or both enough of both? How many uh, iPods? Do, how many iPods do you see? How many iPods do you see? Oh, any more? Right. None. They cannibalize themselves. Oh yeah, exactly. But I mean, doing both in terms of if you are a public company. Uh, there are actually public companies who tell, you know, the analysts, uh, hey, you know, this whole thing about the quarterly pressure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not our game. If you don't like our stock, that's OK. Uh, but we're we're not in it. You know, the quarterly report is only one of several things that we're tracking. And it's right. not the most imp- it's not the most important thing. And so really, it's it's just understanding who you are. What do you want to create? I think it's getting back to such lofty things as purpose and intent, you know, strategic mm-hmm. intent, and um, just not you, – you're giving the devil just enough of his due, but not any more than that, I think, is, is kind of what the, what the recipe is. Uh, I, when I was with Mars, of course, they're a private company, and they got to do <laughs> – all kinds of uh, just kind of quirky things. And some of their, even some of their, um, even some of their metrics were Mars 
Marsley idiosyncratic, <laughs> uh, you know, metrics. And, and, but Hey, you know, um, because they were a private company, they didn't have that quarterly pressure and they really could do some things. They could make some, some investments, you know, more for the long haul. How long has the company been around? Uh, I should know this, uh, approximate to, to the date, but I, I think Forrest, uh, started off with his dad back in Spokane, if I remember this right, uh, back in the forties, mm-hmm. I think. Maybe, yeah, I think I might somewhere in the forties. So we're talking 70, 75 plus years. And they're probably a top 100 company now, right? Well, they're massive. And I mean, doing things like, you know, they bought Wrigley now, how long ago, seven or eight years ago for like 23 billion, you know, <laughs> you know, oh. they were, they were, um, they're already pretty huge. They're massive globally. And a lot of people don't understand that Mars does have like a, uh, a main mill business that is huge globally here in the States. The only thing you know them uh, about them outside of candy. Uh, most people don't even know that, you know, their pet business, you know, pedigree, Calcan, mm. you know, Royal Canaan, you know, all those brands is huge. Mm. Uh, but then they also own uh, uncle Ben's rice. So Diversifying. But the <laughs> yeah. key thing is how many companies, if you go to a top, take the list of the top 100 companies in 1940, how many exist today? Oh, yeah. The, it, it's 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 rare. Right. Uh, I think. And then and then the shorter list, of course, would be public companies mm-hmm. who've been that long because there is this pressure toward. um you know, conglomeration, you know, uh, there, there are shakeouts in various industries and, you know, you end up with, you know, three or four big players and that's about it. So it's, uh, I, yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I'm happy that our company is private. Uh, <laughs> glad that we're not part of a larger con- conglomerate and we don't have to answer. We have to answer to our clients and that's wholly appropriate. And you always want to be in that position and you want to be very responsible value providers to really wonderful clients. And I'm happy that we don't have to divert our loyalties to I- anyone other than our clients. Now let's go back to um, your upbringing and things like that. Does that um, match perhaps your past at being in a private company? I'm guessing a small company, um, bonded, almost family type <laughs> of environment. Maybe it's something that resonates with you. Well, I mean, undoubtedly. So, dad was um, dad was just a good guy, good businessman, fair, but not a pushover. Uh, he was. He worked in the. Uh, he he tried a few things. He was dad. <laughs> dad didn't have a ton of hobbies well other than fishing and so he was just a crazy fisherman um but other than that he i think he was i think he loved work and even when he was in a position where he could have pulled more out of work and everything i think he just enjoyed it it wasn't it wasn't workaholism or anything because there's no real deficiency motivation there or anything he just really enjoyed it and and it wasn't you know he wasn't trying to you know what did he do uh, so where he ended up was in commercial construction. Uh, hmm. but there was, there's one time when I was about, what would I have been around 10, 11 years old, where he had three different businesses going on. He had the commercial construction business going on. He was partner in a country music radio station 
and he was partner in launching a um, an irrigation company that did sprinkler lines for hmm. farmers. See out west, you actually have to water your crops because you can't rely on the rain. <laughs> I'm from Tucson. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so remember those, uh, so like wheel lines, mm-hmm. you know, you'd see the big sprinklers and they had the wheels on them and you'd change, you know, where they were, you know, two or three times a day. And yeah, so he's involved with the company that, uh, put those kinds of systems together and we'd go out on huge installs for, for, uh, farmers, you know, um, systems covering, you know, hundreds of acres. And, uh, so for, it, there's a point where he was actually engaged in all three. Hmm. And he couldn't do that for two. He did that for about, I think, about three years. And then he said, well, that's all interesting, but I think I need to focus on the commercial construction. So that's where he ended up. And uh, and just a great craftsman, good businessman, very fair. Um, he was always he, he, he always straddled that fine line of being super reasonable without being a pushover. And I remember if uh, other people were late in paying him, he had this really just kind of disarming way of, of uh, making the point. He'd <laughs> call them up and he'd say, so Bob, you know, uh, what time do you, uh, do you guys have dinner? <laughs> and Bob would say, well, you know, about six o'clock. He said, well, great. You know, uh, you're not paying me. So I, I guess I need to come get a meal from you. and then and then you know point taken you know he wasn't a jerk about it he'd make the point do it in kind of a yeah somewhat of a lighthearted way but he'd say hey you got to take care of me here uh and and just a good man so well respected uh, by other people including the competition uh was never super cutthroat or anything always competitive uh, always, you know, he was a smart businessman, so he made sure that his supply chain, you know, the the um, different vendors from whom he bought, you know, product, uh, that, that he was always in a great relationship with them, always had preferred pricing, always was, you know, right on top of those kinds of relationships and everything. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I undoubtedly learned a lot from him. My dad never, as long as I can remember, my dad was always self-employed. and. Hmm. Um, with that, I got to see, I think both the ups and downs of that. I mean, I I certainly got to see kind of whatever sense of freedom and satisfaction one gets from working for oneself. But then I also saw, you know, when it was crunch time, responsibility for everything, you just kind of have to be on it. You know, you don't really get to walk away from it. So it was, uh, it was, it was really good. And, and he was, uh, he was just a, a wonderful guy, wonderful guy. Now you grew up um, in was it southern Idaho, I believe. You said a yeah. rural area, kind of a, closer to. As an analogy, they call um, northern Florida southern Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Were you really more northern Utah than southern uh, Idaho? We were we were that part of Idaho that is in all ways a cultural colony of Utah, and and so uh, I grew up Mormon. Uh, dad was, uh, very involved in leadership in the church there. You know, it's a lay clergy. So, uh, all the, you know, the congregation members are very involved in running, you know, the, the affairs of the church. Uh, dad was, but again, (laughs) dad's restlessness, you know, he, in addition to the, 
the family business. He was also for a while, he was mayor of our town. He was also the equivalent of well, a small town. So, I mean, it wasn't huge. Still <laughs> politics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was the, what would be the equivalent of a bishop in a Catholic, you know, diocese. He was the guy who actually, um, seven or eight different congregations reported up to, hmm. um, and, um, just really just a, a good guy, great sense of humor, great perspective. I don't really remember seeing him worry too much. I saw him always being super responsible, mm-hmm. but I never saw him. I think he felt that um, the antidote to worry is to do something, you know, and actually, you know, fix it, oh. <laughs> you know. And, and so, um, and yeah, so that was... Yeah. So that was, that was, I think I, yeah. How much of what forms you, you're not even really aware of until maybe later in life when you can kind of, you know, connect the the dots, you know? So I, I, I am like my dad in some more ways than I could have ever imagined. I hear myself, I'll catch myself every now and again laughing and I'll go, holy smokes, that sounds just like dad, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm an awful lot like him. You have siblings or I do. I'm the youngest of four. Uh, mom wanted to have 10 kids, but she had, uh, eight miscarriages. Oh yeah. And so, uh, I'm the youngest, but I'm the youngest by nine years. So uh. they had the first, they had the first three kids, boom, boom, boom. So I grew up with older boomers. Mm-hmm. And I'm just a trailing boomer myself. I'm right on the, I'm right on the cusp of, um, boomer, you know, gen X. And, um, so yeah. And so I had the, you know, youngest child, mm-hmm. I had that experience, but then by the time I was nine, I was the only kid at home. You were an only kid essentially. Yeah. So I, I, I have, uh, a lot of that makeup, uh, but yeah, of course, the other three would say I was spoiled and everything, but the point I would make to them is that it's not like mom and dad picked up all the chores that were divvied among all the kids. Mm-hmm. So when they all left home, I did all the chores of all the kids, you know, and, and so <laughs> it was it was, uh, it was a good experience. It was and and I'm very I'm, I'm kind of the not just for I, yeah, from from the the birth standpoint, and everything, but also, uh, I'm I'm just weird in the family in other ways. I'm I'm the only you know kid who graduated from college, uh, and then went on to grad school. They're all still back in um, you know northern Utah and Idaho. Mm-hmm. I'm in New Jersey, you know. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, I've always kind of been the weirdo in the family, and I've I've for the most part I've been more than okay with that. And what took you um, on the road? Um, I think a very real part of me understood that I wasn't going to stay. Um, I think so. We ended up in Idaho because that's where mom and dad were originally from. But I was born in L.A. and did up through third grade in L.A. I was more than happy to leave L.A. because it was 1971 and smog was horrible. And I had a really bad kind of chronic bronchitis that cleared mm. up the moment we left LA. 
And I just remember that. I remember smog days. I remember when the air was so bad that school would be called off and we had mm-hmm. to stay indoors. And all those things that pe- it's just hard to imagine now unless you go to Shanghai. Uh, <laughs> and so um, it did not break my heart to leave L.A., but I think not having grown up only in Idaho, mm-hmm. Uh, I always had this constant reminder that there was this bigger, broader world out there. I was always a super curious kid. I was a nerd. I started reading the encyclopedia when I was five. You know, uh, it was just really interesting to me to go pick up, you know, like uh, H. Hey, let's find out about H now, you know, (laughs) in the world book encyclopedia and just read every topic that started with H. And then, you know, I just I, I read every volume of the world book encyclopedia when I was a kid. Time life Uh, books. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I was just <laughs> always fascinated in this bigger, broader world out there. And so I think I think I had a pretty good idea when I was younger, kind of up through. I guess even probably my senior year, maybe even like my my freshman year, of senior year of high school, my freshman year of college, I really thought I was going to be a band teacher. I really thought that was it. I just I loved it. I was a band geek. I played uh, trumpet. And, um, earlier they asked me to help out on tuba. And so I figured out the bass clef and that different embouchure and all that. Um, so I always loved music and I just thought that's probably how I was going to go. But then I got turned on to like business and, and, you know, I got particularly pretty early on figured out the innovation might be a thing for me. What do you play now? Is it still tuba and trumpet or? I, you... I can. Uh, if you don't stay on top of the brass instruments, your embouchure goes mm-hmm. and you get this really airy tone and your, you know, your duration craters. Uh, <laughs> so I still can, but I, uh, I'm self-taught. Um, a bunch of us thought it'd be a great idea to start a band and not a, not a, you know, uh, an orchestra type band, but a, band, a rock and roll band. Right, right. And, and what I had access to, we all ended up playing whatever we had access to. And my family had this old cheesy, I don't even know how we ended up with it. And, and mom and dad aren't around anymore. So I, 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 I blew it. That was one question I really should have asked them, but they had this real cheesy old school, like honer organ with, a, hmm. with a massive uh, wooden cabinet with a rotating Leslie speaker in it. And so that I became keys, I became keys guy, you know, I don't That's know. Awesome. That, yeah. So, uh, just self-taught. And the reason why we could pull it off is because we're all self-taught and we all sucked pretty, you know, horribly for, you know, a year and a half, a couple years, mm-hmm. but we just kept getting better and better. And, and there was no other band. There was one band of, of, guys two years older than us in our school, but we were certainly the only one around our age. And so we were a pretty big deal. You were deep purple of Des Moines. <laughs> well, of, of Shelly, Idaho. Of the, and, and, and there you need to know this, the high school mascot, yes, was the fighting russets of Shelly. Uh, oh yeah. So we were the, we were the King potatoes, but um, yeah. And so, you know, on the music, if you just hang in there, you, you know, I, th- I think the secret to acquiring any any real skill, and I apply it to the work I do in innovation as well, is you have to love it long enough to be willing to suck at it for a while. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested, if your curiosity and your interest keeps driving you in that direction, you're going to get better. And you just need to 
be real and 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 just even a little bit of reflection you know teaches you that hey i mean i don't know about the rest of you but it probably took some pretty concentrated effort for about 2 weeks to really get bike riding down you know and even then mm-hmm. it's still kind of <laughs> wobbly but man that was like a that's busting a lot for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and certainly a lot of a lot of crashes and skin knees and and elbows and everything but you love it and you just have to do it and so you do it and the whole point about sucking at it is is almost it's just irrelevant because where you can see you're going matters so much more that you're you're happy i guess to suffer the the embarrassment or whatever did you plan on um being a successful band and having that as a possible career no this is idaho <laughs> we, the only the only band i'm sorry to laugh but the only band ever to come out of idaho that uh, anyone would know was uh paul revere and the raiders mm. uh you know uh, Cherokee nation, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, uh, from they were from Boise. And so they were from the huge, you know, the biggest city in Idaho, not just Idaho. So that was, no, that was, and we were a cover band. I mean, we, we messed around with some original stuff, but we were just delighted to be able to put on assemblies and, you know, play school dances and, you know, all those kinds of things. But that got me on a path. And, um, to the point that I've now, been in one band or another for most of the last, you know, 42 years. Okay. So you're still in a band. Not right now. (laughs) You're between bands. I'm, and it's driving me nuts and I'm getting antsy and something's going to have to break or, or yeah, there'll be problems. Yeah. I got to get something else going. I miss it. I love playing live. I'm, I'm, uh, I've, I don't think it'd be accurate to say I've never felt stage fright, but it's honestly been so long ago that I, I don't really remember the details of stage fright. Do you find fun and failure? And I don't mean that um, yeah. meanly. Yeah. 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 I think, I think I told you that I, I don't have uh, evidently much of a, of a well-formed social barometer that like it takes so much to make me so embarrassed that it's uh that will actually stop me. Uh, I just go, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> I just want to do my thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I will always try to present well. I mean, it's never for me, it's never an excuse to do, um, you know, to, to have shoddy performance. You know, you always want to make sure that you're kind of acquitting yourself well and everything. But I, I think it gets back to and then I remember hearing the um, the research on people at the end of their life. And when they talk about regret it gets back to the same idea. The regrets mm-hmm. that people talk about are not the regrets of commission, but the regrets of omission. It's not regret for what they did, but for what they never did that really plagues people. And I think that has, I don't know if it's, you know, you know, the old guy, um, pre variant of FOMO or what, <laughs> you know, but you know, fear of missing out. Mm. Uh, but I think I've always kind of thought, I, I gotta try it. I, I got to, I can't, it's going to drive me nuts. Not, to, I'd rather try it and fail and fail often enough that I go, okay, yeah, I really don't like it enough to stick with it, mm-hmm. but at least I have the data, 
you know, I collect the data and I go, okay, I can apply my, <laughs> I can apply my, my interest, my curiosity and my passion elsewhere. You seem locked into, um, a lot of youthful phrasing and things like that, like the follow, and I guess you have YOLO and different <laughs> variants. Um, is that from having kids is, are you kind of gleaning it off of them and, and acting as their peer or just something I, natural? Yeah. I've always, yeah, I've never, you know, the parent who tries too much to be just like a friend and everything. I never did that because, um, that always seemed kind of cringy. I I'm so I think one of the things that makes me good at innovation is I'm really fascinated by what's going on. Okay. And, and I remember fairly early hearing some age peers, like start to like go in on, um, talking about rap the way my dad's generation talked about rock and roll. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, well, wait, it wasn't that long ago that we were on the other end of this, right? I mean, have you already forgotten what, what that was like? Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I am interested in what's new. Uh, but I'm also interested in some of the oldest stuff as well. You know, mm -hmm. I just think it's, I, I think, um, you know, the, um, a great quote. Uh, I was just talking with Hayden Bruce about this. Have you met Hayden? No, no. He's, he's in the, he's in the mixed metal arts community. Really interesting okay. guy. But, but uh, he, he tweeted this quote from Terrence, um, an old Roman philosopher, former slave, something like that. And I'm going to slot, I'm going to paraphrase it poorly, but he said, um, I am interested in all things human. Nothing is alien to me. And I think I I can I can be on board with that. Now the danger of that, of course, is then just kind of this flitting, uh, dilettantish, superficial, <laughs> you know, uh, fascination so much with novelty that you never, you know, put down any stakes anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there, the really good thought came from. Um, Tom Kelly, a guy whose work I just really admire. And he talks about how, you know, good innovators are T shaped people. They have the, you know, so the letter T, so you have the breadth, mm -hmm. you're, you're conversant in a lot of things, but then you have at least one area then in which mm -hmm. you really, uh, you know, plug in some depth. And so yeah, I think, I, I think, I, I think I'm able to do that. I'm, I can have, uh, a pretty decent conversation on a lot of things. And then I can go totally into, down the rabbit hole on innovation uh, beyond the point that most people care to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've always been fascinated by everything pretty much. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm, I, I haven't spent a whole lot of time, you know, thinking about the ins and outs of crocheting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, other than that, you know, I was a good, I was a good, uh, science student. I was a good math. I was a good, I was a good STEM student, but I was also pretty good at the humanities and other things as well. Uh, and I still read in all of it. That's cool. When you, um, so after high school, a lot of Mormons go on what missionaries or missions or what do they call it? Yes, I did my, uh, I did my mission in, um, the Quito, Ecuador mission. And, uh, before that experience, my Spanish was limited to, uh, gracias and taco, I think. 
Uh, and so that was a that's a fascinating experience. And so in the Mormon Church, if you're called to you know, what they call a language speaking mission where you have to learn a different language. Mm-hmm. Your first two months in the mission are actually in the missionary training center. And at that time, and I think for um, most in the United States, that is still um, adjacent to BYU's campus in Provo, Utah. Mm-hmm. So you go in after three days, you have to quit speaking English. And you have to start speaking your target language. And so, of course, certainly those first couple of weeks are are horrible because you don't have any vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so you do all these workarounds. You do lame things like just put an O on the end of English words and, <laughs> and say, hey, that sounds Spanish enough, doesn't it? <laughs> no. uh, pasame el plato, you know, pass me the plate, you know. Uh, you know, but uh, what does and and then you're in class 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And so it really is like boot camp. You're exhausted, but a really great experience. And then Ecuador was wonderful. And I'm really, really happy I had that experience. I really grew to love the Ecuadorian people. And um, uh, I got to be a pretty good Spanish speaker. And then when I came back from uh, Ecuador and finished my schooling. At, I went to BYU and then I was actually an, an instructor in the missionary training center. Hmm. And so then I, I taught Spanish for three years to, uh, to missionaries who were getting ready to go out. How, how long, uh, how long is the mission? Mission is two years, two years. Okay. So, yeah. so, I came, so I came back as a 21 year old sophomore. I did my okay. first year. So the, the way it was back then, is most if if you're if you were going to go to college, mm-hmm. you went to your freshman year, went on your mission, came back as a 21 year old sophomore. Okay, okay. So you're you're older than the average student, essentially. Uh, except I was at BYU and everybody. Okay, so you were just a peer. Okay, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. We we're we we're all pretty much in the same boat. So what yeah. was your bachelor's degree in then? So I, I think I had the. Somehow, I mean, you look back and you go, how do you, how do you know what you're going to do? I think I, I think I had a pretty good idea that's probably going to go into business. I hadn't declared a major yet. Actually, I was on the cusp of declaring a music major. And then I saw what happened with all my friends who were music (laughs) majors and they, it became drudgery to them. It became work to them like all too soon. And I would sneak over to the, um, like the piano practice rooms on campus and I could get a room anytime and just go in and jam and have fun and everything because they didn't want to be in there, you know? And so, um, I figured out it kind of got settled for me while I was on my mission. I actually worked in the mission office. So of 160 plus missionaries or so at any given moment, there are four or five who are actually working in the mission office with the mission president to help run the mission. Mm. And I got to do that. And my mission president was this great guy who continues to be a wonderful mentor and friend, um, a guy, uh, a gentleman named Toby Pingree, who was a Harvard MBA and had been very successful in his business and everything. And we talked about it. And, and he said, he said, I think you have a very good mind. My mission president, Toby Pingree, Harvard MBA had been very successful as a financial advisor to um, business owners, had done very well for himself. Very good guy. Very cool. Very, um, just very engaged with life. I mean, he, he was, he came down, I think he was probably in his mid fifties 
And he was in a place where, you know, he, he could do that. He could leave the work world for three years as a mission president. And um, we just talked a lot about it. He said that, you know, he encouraged me. He said he thought that I probably had a pretty good mind for business. And it's something that uh, he would encourage me to uh, pursue. And that's, I brought it up because that's where I think I was heading anyhow. But um, so I came back understanding. So this was 83. So I came back with the idea that I was going to go on for an MBA. Okay. And, and then the question becomes, so what do you do for an undergrad that's going to be interesting? And I thought that I would probably uh, focus on international business. Mm -hmm. So I came back from Ecuador. I had all these language credits I could test out of. Uh, and I didn't, to me, it didn't, again, I think it's part of this. I'm interested in too many things. It didn't make sense to me to be a business undergrad and then get an MBA. Mm. So my undergrad was actually in Latin American studies, which is mm. so interdisciplinary, Latin American, everything, geography, history, political science, anthropology, et cetera. Uh, and so I got through my Latin American studies degree and then I only applied to two schools. I got a scholarship at, at BYU for uh, grad school, but I we I was already married at the time because you know Mormons get married young. And so I, I met my wife at, in in college and we got married. Mm -hmm. But we decided we wanted to get out of Provo. So uh, the other place I got accepted was at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. So we mm -hmm. headed out to Indiana, and that's where I did my MBA. And that's uh, Bobby Knight was still there. Uh, we were there when the last time the Hoosiers won the national championship in basketball and, you know, all those good things. The calm coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had just done the chair throwing incident the year before. Nice. And I just thought, I thought, oh, what a loser. Like, I'm, I I just went there. I just saying, I'm not going to get sucked in. I'm not going to get sucked in. And of course, I got sucked in <laughs> one game in assembly hall. And it was pretty magical. It was pretty cool. Now, are you still involved with the church or? I am not. Uh, I, um, I think kind of who I am, you know, just fundamentally, I mean, um, I'm an innovation guy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I blow up assumptions for a living. You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, to me, questions matter so much more than, um, answers, particularly unexamined answers. Mm -hmm. that um, those questions that became increasingly important to me um, were not only not acknowledged as valid by the church, they were actually kind of threatening. And, you know, I, I believe in rights of free association. And so I thought, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> you know, see ya. Are there any specific ones that really, or, or teachings that really bothered you? Or Well, I think... Um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, big truth and authority claims require some kind of backup, mm. you know? And so, um, you know, the Mormons, I mean, like many religions, but, but I mean, uh, I think there are certain religions that put even more emphasis on it. I mean, broadly in the Christian community, you know, if you're baptized a Methodist, you can, you can go to church, you can go to the Presbyterian church and, you know, there, there are, you know, kind of, there's a reciprocal arrangement there and you're all mm -hmm. good. 
um, Mormons don't allow that. Mormons uh, uh, have some doctrines that um, require the Mormon church to be formed because all other churches were in such error that uh, you know, a restoration of all things was, was necessary. Um, so I grew up with this idea, and I served my mission, and I converted people and everything to this idea that we had the truth and we had the way. And um, it just, you know, it became increasingly difficult for me to look at my non-Mormon friends and simultaneously understand how to a person, they were all better than me in some really important ways, you know, just as, as men, just as, as good people. And I could learn so much from them, but then at the same time, having to have in my mind that, you know, somehow their faith was somehow imperfect and mine wasn't, mm-hmm. it just, it just, yeah, it, it quit working for me. Are you still a person of faith of some kind or just you're flat out agnostic or I'm just curious. I, I um, so a lot of people who have been what I've been through, not not even just in the Mormon faith, but any kind of, I think, more conservative faith, when they walk away from it, a lot of them head straight to atheism. And like, um, I'm cool not knowing uh, and not having to know. And I again, it's back to this thing. I'm really good with questions, and I'm really good with with mystery. Mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have massive closure needs. I mm-hmm. I have I have massive curiosity needs. Um, and so, um, with some of my friends who then who've been through this and, and headed straight to atheism, when 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 I could bring it up with them respectfully, yeah, I would say things like, are you open to the notion that in leaving the church and going straight to atheism, you've just traded in one form of surety for another? Mm-hmm. You know, how it's just kind of like the photo negative. And I'm just happy to say that I I don't buy into the construct theist atheist. I just think it's I think it's diverting, I think, so much energy, attention, and unnecessary um, interpersonal conflict has come from that. Mm -hmm. I know that I don't know a whole lot. And when I look at the story, I think as well as we currently believe we can construct it, you know, Big Bang, formation of galaxies, this solar system comes together, Mm -hmm. you know, eukaryotes and prokaryotes emerge, you know, life from, from, you know, inert matter. And then hit the flash forward and you and I are having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. I mean, that's how is that not enough of, of just a fantastic, tremendous, wonderful story that you can't feel a deep sense of gratitude, not, not directed toward any you know being up in the sky or whatever, mm-hmm. but just to existence itself. And, you know, when you understand Additionally, then the, the the gift that we have of consciousness and be able to think about that and be able to think about our own mortality and to be able to think about our ancestors and our descendants and 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 where we stand in this whole huge story. I just think, man, there's there's so much there that I don't need to put a whole lot more on it. And I think it's still going to continue to blow my mind until I die. Did that cause any um splits or relationship problems within your family? It it was tough with dad for um, uh, probably a good seven or so years. 
Hmm. And we'd have our little mini periods of, you know, rapprochement in which it looked like it was okay. And then I'd get another email from him, you know, (laughs) and, and I had to make peace with the fact that, um, he was proud of, of, of me in a lot of ways, but I also had to realize and and just be okay with the fact that I, uh, was his single greatest disappointment. Hmm. Uh, and that's that, that used to plague me and not, I didn't, I wasn't mad at him for it. Cause I understood it. Right. I understood where he was coming from. It was totally reasonable from, cause I'd been there, you know, I'd, I'd had that, that worldview and everything mm-hmm. and my leaving the church, you know, really within that mindset really is about as big a tragedy as you could have. Is that why, um, You've mentioned Beale's Law a lot, which I think is fantastic. <laughs> is that part of why that had such a profound effect on you? And can you tell us about it? Yeah. So, so Beale's Law is is when I was uh, going to grad school in Indiana, I managed a music store, and um, we had the store right in Bloomington, and then another one half hour south down in Bedford, down in so southern southern Indiana is northern Kentucky, right? And, uh, and you'd have, uh, these just wonderful folks come in and it was that accent. And it took me a while to figure out that, you know, Piana was piano and, uh, and get fiddle was guitar. And, oh, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you got one of those new get fiddles, you know? Um, so one of the guys, uh, one of the sales guys who part-time sales guys down in the Bedford store was this really wonderful guy that I just hit it off. He's about 15 years older than me. So I was in my late twenties. He would have been, you know, late thirties, early forties. And, uh, his name was Tug Beal and he was from Bedford, just wonderful, wonderful guy. And, you know, things would be slow on weeknights in Bedford, Indiana, in the Vance music store. So we would jam a lot. <laughs> and, and, and actually sometimes people would come in just to jam and, you know, not buy anything, but, you know, jam with us. And that was fine. You know, we, we, I, I think we had some good sales. We figured if we were, you know, just good guys about it and weren't too weird about it, we'd actually still sell enough and we'd be fine. But in the meantime, jamming was fun. So he, uh, eventually invited me to join his band. And so we, I got to play with Tug Bill and Legacy uh, most Friday and Saturday nights at the hippest joints in Southern Indiana, like the Elks, the Moose, the VFW, the American Legion, you what know, kind of music, <laughs> but pretty much honky tonk, but we had to cover <laughs> some, we had to cover some range because on a Friday and Saturday night in Southern Indiana, you'd often have three generations of a family coming mm. to these things. Right. So we played everything from Patsy Cline to Springsteen to, you know, deep purple and, you know, whatever played some R and B, some Motown stuff, whatever. But anyhow, Tug and I were just chatting once in the store as we were wont to do. And we were talking about getting along with other people and just kind of out of the blue Tug says, Adam, you know, you can get along with anyone if you'll spot them two character flaws. And I just, I took a mo- I took a breath, man. I mean, that was really so simple, but so good. And, and it was really, so we talk about in our work, how the test of a great insight is that it's obvious only in hindsight. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
you've never heard it quite teed up that way before. But when you do, you go, holy smokes, that's good. That's right. That makes so much sense. I totally see how that works. And I told him right there, I said, Tug, that is so good. That's, that's really great. So the years move on. I graduate. We live in, you know, three different states. Uh, and I lose track of Tug. Uh, so because of the internet, I finally track him down in 2010. I just, I want, I really wanted to talk to him again and just reconnect, see what was going on. So I found him, we got on the phone and I said, Hey, Tug, it's Adam Hansen. I don't know if you remember me. Oh, Adam, sure. I remember you. I was wondering what happened to you and, and Noreen. My wife's name is Noreen. Mm. And um, so we got talking and just reminiscing about the good old days. I asked him if his band was still going. He said, yeah, I finally retired that about two years ago. And, you know, but uh, I we were talking and I started to remind him of this story about uh you know, Bill's law and the two character flaws thing. And so I laid that out for him and there was this pause and Tug says, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and in my mind, I had built up that this was like kind of like the basis of his whole worldview or something like this mm -hmm. was like a real, and it was just an off the cuff statement from him, but it still reflected his observations, mm -hmm. you know, as this very practical, just good man who had a really good heart mm -hmm. and was realistic about people. And that's the power of it for me has been that, you know, you don't, you, you know, don't be literal about it. Most of us have more than two character flaws. And I guess that's how you define character flaw. And I, I, mm -hmm. uh, I certainly wouldn't allow into that, you know, um, you know, uh, recidivist armed robbery or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty aware of what my shortcomings are. I think I, I, I've been, uh, yeah, I've been at it long enough to get feedback and know, you know, there's a pattern. In, <laughs> in what I, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a pattern in what I suck at, you know, and it hasn't necessarily changed that much over a few decades. You so, are married after all. <laughs> you might've well, heard. <laughs> we're, you know, we just had our, we just had our 34th anniversary, man. I mean, you, we've been, we're, we've somehow made it, you know, this far, I don't take it for granted, but uh, anyhow, I just think that Bill's law is really, it's been so helpful to me. So I've told at least 200, maybe 300 people and who knows if they've told other people, whatever, but, uh, just by posting on social media and everything, I suppose now that, you know, at least a thousand people have been exposed to Bill's law and I'm just happy to have been the messenger. Did that help you, um, move forward with your dad? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I think a good stage in early adult development, and then hopefully you're, you're in the position with your parents where you can do this, they where passed. you really get, you really get past the parent child dynamic mm -hmm. and you really do. And you still continue to honor them as your parents. They've done so much for you and everything, but for it to become healthy, you really do have to get to more of a peer mm -hmm. relationship, I think. Well, that generation and overall, I think maybe didn't do that so well. It certainly do it didn't do that so well, I think, a lot in the Mormon church. And I actually got so I had the difficulties with dad, but I'm his only child, I think, mm. with whom he actually got there. Mm. And and um and that's 
I got sad. How about your siblings? Are you still in touch with them or getting? Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're good. My uh, my my siblings are are really good folks. They're <laughs> again, they just think I'm weird, uh, but a lot of people think I'm weird, and so that, there's no problem there. No, there's a lot of love. I I speak with. Uh, I speak with my two sisters regularly. I, yeah, my brother and I are very different. He's the oldest and he's um, in any number of ways on any number of uh, spectrums or, or spectra, if we're being hoity-toity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he and I would be, uh, or I guess probably continuums, continua. He and I would would define the poles on most <laughs> of, of these continua. Mm. I. I'm a raging extrovert. He's quite introverted. Uh, I'm overly garrulous. You know, he's, you know, he's pretty quiet. He, um, he stayed with the family business, uh, and is just a brilliant craftsman. Uh, I'm the nerd who went on to, uh, grad school, you know? And where was uh, grad school was in Indiana. And yeah, from and, there, uh, yeah. um, did you go straight to Mars? No, no, no. We, we spent, um, got a job up in Minneapolis. I was innovation, uh, as new product development manager at this small kitchen electrics company. Uh, we grew it from, I was like marketing employee, number two, total company employee, like number 23 or something. And we grew it. It It's like a $4 million company at that point. Mm -hmm. And in about four years, we grew it to 150 million. And uh, just had a really great experience there. And then my dad actually had uh, an accident. Um, he fell off a scaffold when mm. he was 65 and fractured his skull. The first 24 hours were a little dicey. Wow. I, hop I hopped on a plane immediately and we flew out and, um, and talked to him. And, and he recovered well and it, it, everything looked like he was going to be fine. But I'd been kind of nudging him for a couple of years saying, Hey dad, what's the succession plan? Are you getting the other guys set up to run the business? You know, what's going on? And I think he mm -hmm. just didn't want to confront that. Mm -hmm. So he hadn't done anything. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it was clear he had to really, he had to get out of the business. And so kind of, we went through the business's books and everything and kind of looked at things and, Almost at the same moment. I, I honestly, I don't even remember which one of us first broached the subject, but I moved my family back and I was president of the company hmm. for just for the kind of a turnaround time. And I put in an accounting system and a project management system and um, got some of the some of the guys trained on it and everything, doing up, you know, the managerial duties. And I told them that, look, this is you know, at a certain point I'm going to need to get back to my career, but let's, let's get this going. Let's see what this looks like. So I did that for, we did that for two years. We moved back to Idaho for a couple of years. And then I got the word from uh, M&M Mars. I, I kept networking. I did, a, I did some um, innovation consulting on the side, did a few different projects while I was back out in Idaho just to keep my network active and everything. And so, um, yeah, we got them. Mars came a calling and we came out here now coming up on 20 years ago. Wow. And how long were you at, um, Mars before you, uh, jumped ship again? Uh, no, only, <laughs> only three and a half years. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, you know, um, 
I don't know how much you know marketing people or innovation people, but it can be a fairly uh, peripatetic <laughs> kind of endeavor. You go to a gig for three or four years, then you move on to something else. I really thought when we moved here, I thought at the outside, we'd be here maybe five years max. And uh, I became a client of the company I'm with now, Ideas to Go. And uh, when I felt like I had accomplished at Mars what I was going to be able to, uh, I'd had I had a really good relationship with uh, with the good folks at uh, at Ideas to Go, so it was pretty easy to make the switch over. And I knew I was going to end up on the I I knew that I was going to end up on the consultant side at some point because I really wanted to do that. I thought it'd be really interesting to be able to have a lot of you know the variety of different topics to work on, different mm -hmm. innovation challenges and everything. I knew that that was going to be the you know kind of like the concluding part of my career. So you could stay in one place, but yet get the variety of hopping from job to job to job to job. So stability yeah. and variety all in one shot. Exactly, exactly. And I've had weird kind of week on week topic whiplash like uh one week helping to uh figure out how to communicate a new alzheimer's drug and then the next week coming up with new deodorant possibilities for young men <laughs> wow yeah. when you're innovating in such a variety who needs to be at the table uh on the client team you always want to make sure you've got a good cross-functional team so you want to make sure it's not just marketing and market research, but you really need to have R&D in there. Um, you need to have, if there is any kind of regulatory or legal component to it. So we do a fair amount of work, for example, in both pharma and financial services. And so, of course, legal and regulatory are huge in both of those. So making sure those voices are part of the, the, the client team. But then what we do, and, and one of our kind of key distinguishing features is we have think of who your target audience is. And then within that target audience, we've already identified the people who are much more creatively generative, articulate and good at working in group creative process. So if it's a consumer product, we have a panel of creative consumers already. We have 300 plus uh, creative consumers over our markets, New Jersey, uh, Orlando, and, and Minneapolis. If it's more of a B2B thing, like in pharma, where the person often on a given treatment who really has the decision-making authority and, and influence is a doctor, then we have creative doctors that we can bring in to help us with that. Are these like focus groups? Very, very different. That's that's the frame of reference where people start. But we're not looking for the answer. We're looking for possibilities. Hmm. And so having people who are really generative, people who are really adept with metaphor, people who are really great at building off uh, other people's ideas, uh, et cetera, is really is really important. And okay. uh, we go to some pains to find them. And if they pass all of our hurdles, which are pretty rigorous, then we actually do some pretty intensive training then to harness their creativity in in ways. Well, we equip them with some of our language. We show them some of the exercises that we'll do in session and everything. We just get them very comfortable, comfortable, comfortable to be able to plug in. Uh, and then they work directly with the client team. So it's real co-creation and um, so you'll get two clients, one of them, and you'll give them, okay, here's our focus area. Here's the creative exercise we want you to run first so you can get some interesting stimuli going. 
run the exercise for eight minutes, gather your stimuli, and then build, come up with 12 to 20 new ideas in this target area. Uh, And so it's really, it's just really fun, super generative in the course, different than a focus group also, is that it's not just two hours or 90 minutes, it's usually a full eight hours. Hmm. Okay. So can we play? Yeah, let's do it. Let's say that um, I'm greedy. You're coming to talk about a podcast. Yeah. Where would we go with it? What would be some good ideas? So for the unstructured podcast? Sure. Why not? Uh, So I would say uh, let's list, uh, just to make it workable, but quickly, let's list five assumptions that you and I are making about this podcast. Okay. And it can be anything. Nothing is too obvious. So if I were doing this for salad dressings, I would say they tend to be liquid. You tend to pour them on top of the salad. They tend to have a sweet and or savory flavor profile, you know, whatever. So what's, what's one assumption you make about uh, your podcast? Tends to be interview oriented or conversations. Yep. Okay. Uh, It tends to be more than a half hour in length. Yes. But there is no defined um, end time. I envision it could be an hour or it could be up to two. Yeah. Um, so far, it's just been you and an interviewee. So just two right. people talking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, for purposes of, of pulling it off, we do have the video, mm-hmm. but you just, you only release the audio. Correct. So it's audio kind of centric. Very much. Um, it's, um, I guess another um, assumption could be it's, um, you cover lots of questions, but kind of tonally, it's kind of all of a piece, right? I mean, it's not like yeah. the, it's not like the last fifth of the podcast is all that different energetically than the first four fifths. Correct. It's, it's all of a piece and it's meant to travel wherever the conversation goes. Okay. So take any one of these and we're going to do what's called assumption busting and you don't have to flout it entirely. You could either Mm -hmm. just say, what if that weren't true? Or what if that weren't as strongly uh, influential on your thinking? Mm -hmm. So uh, interview, if it weren't an interview or if it weren't entirely an inter- interview, see, even there, you could just say, okay, it's not an interview. You could say it's not just an interview. Right. So even right there, then you can start to go, okay, what else could it be? And you could be, well, it could be a round robin. It could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I've considered um, poetry, soundscaping. Yeah. Uh, monologue stories. Um, yeah. Depending. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, well, and it could be led by whatever the topic is that you want to explore. And, and, and you, <laughs> so what I love about it is it's called unstructure. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, if you haven't figured this out yet, it, it, it shouldn't surprise you that too much structure really makes me itchy. Right. <laughs> and so I'm drawn to something called unstructured. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
it's still unstructured coming from your viewpoint because you know what interests you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there is, there is still there, there's kind of um, what David Bohm was he the guy who called um, referred to the implicate order. Like it's kind of the order that exists, whether or not you want to acknowledge sure. it. <laughs> right. I, I call that irony. There's always <laughs> a structure in even yeah, yeah. Uh, lack of structure. I have oh, to use I, a microphone. I have to use a camera. I have to, yeah, I have a, uh, Believe it or not, a long list of questions for you. Oh my gosh! That I've been going through the whole time. Um, and do you know what? Do you know? I realized I I, I made an assumption uh, that might come back to bite me in just a second, and you might have another edit because I'm down to thirteen percent battery. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but what else? Uh, more. So it's more than a half hour. So far, so yes. uh, you might want to. And the thing is, you can play with all of these assumptions. Mm-hmm. You may still decide to hold them in place. Mm-hmm. But when you start to play with it and you see what's on the other side of that assumption. Mm-hmm. So it's like the idea that uh, I can't remember who, who gave the quote that, you know, kind of the idea of I'm not really interested in the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give my right hand for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. Sure. Right? Uh, and so I'm not particularly interested in you know, um, possibilities on this side of that assumption, I'm interested in seeing what could be on the other side of that assumption. Mm-hmm. And then even if, if that assumption mostly has to hold true, I've at least seen things and played with ideas I wouldn't have been able to get to otherwise. Right. right. So on any of these, you know, just playing, what else could it be other than an interview or interview plus uh, more than a half hour, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe the podcast overall is still more than a half hour, but it has three segments. You know, got, it's got three segments. There are eight segments in total that you perfect. Any one podcast pulls three out of those eight and assembles them in a fun way. Right. Um, two people. I'm looking forward to your first panel. I think that'll be really cool. Um, audio centric. Um, I don't know if. I mean, you could you could even blow out audio centric and just what other kinds of audio you can involve, mm-hmm. you know, could you could you have more uh, clips from other cultural products, you know, that you bring in as as part of the mm-hmm. interview, you know, and, and get some reaction or use some of that as stimuli, you know, to uh, to spur the conversation. Uh, it's all of a piece. Maybe you could really think of every podcast as um you know, uh, you know, the elements of narrative, you know, so you have exposition, mm-hmm. you have the introduction of the conflict, you know, you have, you know, all the things you eventually have the denouement and, you know, all those good things. And so you actually are thinking, even if it's interviewee, maybe it could have more of a narrative structure to it. Sure. So that's just one. Awesome. Those are just, those are just some ideas. These are great things to <laughs> chew on. <laughs> and speaking of different content and originality and battery life of a MacBook, we'll probably need <laughs> to start dad. start wrapping it up. Um, I understand that you have a piece of music that you're going to provide and I can close out with. Can you describe what it is, what it's about? And... Yeah, this is, um, I actually like the challenge when you brought it up. I thought, oh, I can do that, but I want to do something original, something, something that I don't already have in my back pocket. And so I just kind of like 
uh, started on it last night and finished it up this morning. And it's, it's, uh, it's just, it's kind of a bluesy R and B ish, uh, sort of a thing. Uh, I did it entirely inside my Mac. I did not actually, it's all software instruments. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't actually pick up an instrument to play any of it. Uh, what, what Mac has that's wonderful in GarageBand is you think of the keys on a piano Mm -hmm. and now the letter A is C, S is D, D is E. Yeah. And then you have the black keys, which are just the QWERTY row up above it. QWERTY keys. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can, it's it's actually called musical typing. And so Mm. I can, I can actually play a chord right on my keyboard this, this kind of keyboard, it's all keyboard, but, uh, and so, yeah. And so it's all, uh, I performed it all on software instruments. I've got, I, I laid down a bass, I d- laid down a drum. I usually always start with some kind of a drum vibe just to kind of get the feel. And I wait until I have something that makes sense to me. Then I'll lay down a bass track. Uh, and then I'll usually do something with piano keys of some sort. And then, um, either guitar or, uh, so on this one, I actually have solos being taken by respectively an organ, a sax, and then kind of a grungy, uh, kind of distorted guitar. Very cool. So it's a full blown <laughs> com- composition. I, I love that. Yeah. yeah. No lyrics or anything. I mean, it's just, and not even really a melody or anything. It's just, it's, it's just kind of a jam. Awesome. I look forward yeah. to hearing it and look yeah, forward absolutely. to sharing it. Now people can reach you on Twitter at Ad Hansen or Ad Hansen like Ad an admin. Hansen. Yeah, well, so I got on Twitter fairly early, uh, 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. And Adam Hansen was already taken. I go, there aren't that <laughs> many of us. How, how can this be? So I thought, yeah, screw it. Early on, when I first went on AOL back in '94, Mm-hmm. I had the same thing. Even then I, I could have been Adam Hansen 57 or something like that. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to have any numbers after my name. I'll be Ad Hansen. So Ad Hansen has been a, an internet handle of mine for 24 years. Uh, and so I just thought, okay, that's me on Twitter as well. Ad cool. Hansen on Twitter, you can find uh, the company is ideas to go.com and that's spelled out no numeral two. So ideas, T O G O.com. Excellent. And, and then the outsmart your instincts podcast as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. I've already yeah. subscribed. Thank you. <laughs> and listen to a couple of them. So thank you Excellent. so much. I've got three episodes that I'm editing right now and we'll be getting out. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, Eric, this yeah. is great, man. Thank you so much. I, I hope this has been uh, value, valuable to you and your audience. It's sure been enjoyable. I'm sure it will.